Dear Jesus, we pray for the spirit of the living God to fall afresh on us. Father, the subject that we are studying can only become a reality if the spirit is allowed to fall on us. So we invite him to continue to guide us this morning. I pray, Father, that we will take him home with us throughout this next week. Father, make us into the people you've called us to be. We thank you for your great goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are in the middle of a series of studies on 1 Corinthians 13. Several weeks ago, we looked at the preamble to this chapter, the preface of how Paul actually introduces the concept of agape love. In verse 31, Paul says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way, or a way that is beyond comparison. Paul tells the Corinthian believers to be eager for the greater gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. Now, when you look at the list, as we've already done, of the gifts of the Spirit in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as you look at the gifts that Paul outlines there, not just in that one verse, but through the whole chapter, we find out as we look at these, these, these gifts that the Spirit wants to bestow upon us, that God gives us the gifts of the Spirit for the primary reason of the advancement of the gospel commission. Would you agree with me, yes or no? When you look at the list of the gifts that God gives to us, these gifts, God gives them so that we can advance the cause of God, so that we can take the gospel to the world, so that we can fulfill Matthew, uh, where Jesus tells us to take it to all the world, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But then Paul says this, he says, now I'm going to show you a way that is beyond comparison a more excellent way. He says, yes, the gifts of the Spirit are powerful in the proclamation of the gospel, but then he says, I'm going to show you something that is going to add power to this gospel, the fulfillment of the gospel commission that the gifts of the Spirit cannot do on their own. And then he introduces the concept of 1 Corinthians 13, agape, or, or charity in, in, the New, in the King James Version, where he talks about what this love that God wants to create in our heart looks like. Now, we've looked at a lot of different things, but I want to just review a few things this morning. <clears throat> the word agape is a desire to do uh, what is best for somebody else. Agape is not dependent on another person's response in order for it to exist. It loves not because of what it gets, or how the other person responds, but because it cares for and wants the best for others. Simply put, agape does what is best for other people because that's all that agape can do. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how it is being treated, no matter anything that is going on, the only response that a heart that is full of agape has is a response that is going to benefit somebody else in a positive way. 
The servant of the Lord says this in the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901. We've read this, but it's worth repeating. He only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Who are the ones that know God? He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We cannot know God if we don't have love one for another. There's no, there's no fence sitting here. We can't say, I love God, but I don't like my brethren. We can't say, I love God, but I don't like the people that go to church. The only way we can know God is if we have that love for one another. It's a biblical concept. This is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality in our churches or life or energy. The reason why there's little life in our churches is because there's little love in our churches. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. Saturated, it has to be filled to overflowing. It cannot hold anymore. God has given us beautiful theology in our church. Would you say amen? But now we need to pour in the agape on top of it. Fill it up, saturated, filled to overflowing where it cannot hold anymore. Then she tells us our theology will have value. God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of the character of who? Of God. The character of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, Paul outlines for us what the character of God looks like. Another statement, nine manuscript releases, page 128, says this, a loving, lovable Christian. What kind of Christian? Loving and lovable Christian is the most what? Powerful argument in favor of the truth, theology. If we want to make a powerful argument in favor for the truth, we need to get into our prayer closet and have it out with the Lord and say, Father, this is the experience that I crave. I don't want to hamper your cause. I don't want to hold back the moving of the Holy Spirit. I crave this experience of 1 Corinthians 13. I cannot have it on my own. You have to give it to me, and I want it Please give it to me so that I can be a powerful argument in favor of the truth. Amen? That's what we should pray for every day, that the Lord would give us this experience. It's not just mere eloquence in defending the faith, but it's having that heart of love that Jesus has that had that will give the power to the proclamation of the message. It will give power to the gifts of the Spirit. In our last study together, we looked at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul begins the pulling apart, the dissecting, if you will, of agape. And let's take a look at this. We'll read this for just a review, verses 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and what? Endureth all things. Paul gives us the characteristics of agape. He analyzes it. It's, it's almost like he takes 
the character of Jesus, the, the agape love, and he puts it under a microscope and he's looking at the fabric of what it's made out of. He's breaking it down into its parts. Agape is the big concept and now he's gonna show you what it's built out of. It's like he's shining agape through a prism, the prism of God's word. And you know, when you shine light through a prism, there's colors that come out the other side. And Paul is breaking down the agape into the beautiful colors of what it is, what it looks like in practical application in our lives. So let's take a look at verse five in our time together here this morning. First Corinthians 13 and verse five. The beginning part of that says that charity doth not behave itself how? Unseemly, or I heard some other translations use the word rudely. That's the New King James Version. The NIV says it does not dishonor others. The New American Standard Bible says it does not act unbecomingly. That's a good one, isn't it? Does not act in an unbecoming manner. It is not rude to other people. Charity or agape is never rude or ill-mannered. It is not offensive or what? It is not offensive or impolite. Agape is always kind and courteous and considerate even to the most unloving of people. Again, it's because it's the only thing that agape can do. Whatever situation, whatever circumstances agape is placed in, the only response that it has is a positive response, is a kind response, a response that's going to draw that person closer to God and is going to help them see the character of Jesus in your life. Unfortunately, it's a shame that some of the sons and daughters of God at times, act rudely. Have you ever had that happen to you? How about if I ask you, have you ever done that? Don't answer it. Right? It's, it's really unfortunate. And, and as I've thought about this, as I've looked at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, specifically with, uh, in regards to being kind and not being rude, you know, there's nothing that brings joy to the heart of a parent than to see their children be kind to one another. To not be rude to each other. To not treat each other in an unbecoming manner. There's nothing that brings more joy to the heart of a parent than to see their children act this way towards one another. And our Heavenly Father, it fills His heart with joy when He sees His children treat one another in a kind and a, uh, a manner that's not rude or unbecoming. It brings joy to the heart of the father, even in the most difficult of circumstances when his children treat each other in a becoming manner. So I ask you, how have you treated your children or grandchildren this past week? How have you treated your spouse this past week? How have you treated some of your fellow church members this past week? What about your coworkers? You know, it's amazing to me as I have thought back on my life and, and, and when I was putting this study together and as I reviewed it, I like to just take a moment and, and flash back in my mind and, and, and ask the Lord to help me to see the areas in my life where I need to improve in this particular point. And it absolutely flabbergasted me 
how often I can be rude to somebody and not even realize it. It's just the time that we live in where being rude or treating somebody in an unbecoming manner has become a normal thing. In fact, in some circles, it is even lauded and and praised by certain individuals. But you know, rudeness isn't just something that we do to somebody's face. It's oftentimes how we think of the context of rudeness, that, that, that we're rude to the person in front of them. But you know, you can be rude to somebody by talking about them behind their back, can you not? And how does that make that person feel when, when they find out how you have treated them in a rude manner? You've been kind to them in front of their face, you smile at them, and you give them a hug, and you do whatever it is, but then later on that person finds out that you're talking about them behind their back. The Bible tells us, Agape doesn't do that kind of stuff. Even if they find things that are not pleasant in other people, it finds its grave in the mind of the individual. It's not verbalized any longer because agape doesn't keep track of those kind of things. I stumbled across an interesting statement from the book Gospel Workers. Gospel Workers, page 391. It says this, talking about Jesus. Jesus never suppressed one word of truth but he uttered it always how? In love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful, kind attention in his intercourse with other people. Do you think you would have enjoyed hanging out with Jesus? Sure you would have. She goes on and she says this. He was never what? Rude. He was never what? He was never rude. He never needlessly spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censure human weakness. He fearlessly denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity. But tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. How did he do it? He had what? tears in his voice. And I think probably sometimes he had tears in his eyes. And too often, I think sometimes we we like to rebuke sin. We like to give the scathing rebukes, but we don't have the tears in our eyes. We don't have the tears in our heart. We don't have the love that that is motivating that rebuke of sin. It's not a rebuke because you're trying to put that person in their place, but Jesus rebuked sin because he knew what sin was gonna do to that individual. He understood that it was gonna cost them their eternal life, and he had deep sorrow in his heart when he saw people exercise sin in their lives. He rebuked it, but he did it with love, and he had tears, sorrow for that individual. And I would suggest to you this morning that before you go around rebuking anybody, you should first have some time of sorrow in your prayer closet for that individual. Praying for them that the Lord would work in their lives. Charity does not treat people in a rude manner. You know, this statement that charity does not behave itself unseemly is proof that what 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is, is not humanly divisible. You cannot create it on your own. It has to come from God because we naturally are rude when we are treated rude. We naturally lash out when somebody lashes out at us. That's the natural human tendency. 
But in order for us to respond the way agape is supposed to respond, it has to be something that is created in us by God. We have to get down on that operating table and let God do that heart surgery in our lives where he opens up our chest and takes out the stony heart and gives us a heart of flesh that beats agape, 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 agape. We have to allow him to do that heart surgery as painful as it might be. We have to allow him to do that in order for us to respond the way Jesus responded in these various circumstances. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Verse five goes on. Charity also does not seek what? Her own. The New Living Translation says it does not demand its own way. The NIV says it is not self-seeking. The English Standard Version says it does not insist on its own way. Of all the characteristics that are described, and there are 15 of them in verses 4 through 7, of all the characteristics that are described in verses 4 through 7, this is probably the most difficult of all of them. Because we're naturally selfish, are we not? We're naturally interested in our selfish motivations and moving ourselves forward. But the Bible tells us that charity seeketh not her own. She is not interested in herself, but she is interested in other people. She's interested in helping them, in aiding them, in moving them somehow, some way closer in their relationship with Jesus. For some, selfishness is so normal that it has become unidentifiable in their lives to them. Surely other people don't have a hard time seeing selfishness in other people. But sometimes it can become difficult to see it in our own lives. Again, because it's just become a social norm in our society to look out in our best interest, to look out for ourselves, for our own advancement, for our own cause, to better ourselves. But that's not the way agape thinks. And it's become so normal that it has become unidentifiable in many of our lives. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, let nothing be done through strife, which means a selfish ambition, or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. In what kind of mind? Lowliness and humility. Ah, there it is. It wasn't up on the screen, was it? There it is. Uh, Lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. Paul is telling us that the mind of Christ, which we're going to find out he introduces the mind of Christ here in just a minute, but Paul is telling us that nothing is done through strife or vainglory, but that it is done in humility of mind. The humble mind of Jesus is what he is describing here. Verses five through, through eight, he goes on and he says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no, what? Reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Let me ask you a question. Was that humbling for Jesus, yes or no? 
to be made in the likeness of man, not only made in the likeness of man, but to take the form of a servant? Was that humbling for him? You know, Ellen White says it was almost an infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take the form of Adam before the fall, but yet he took the form of man after the fall with all of the years and years of hereditary uh, tendencies. It goes on, and uh, Paul continues. He says, and being found in fashion as a man, he what himself? Humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If you want a mind-blowing thought to think about, maybe you've already thought about this once before, but it's a very uh, interesting thought to think about that when Jesus came to earth, he was subject to the law that he wrote himself. Was that humbling? The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was willing to take a humble, that's what charity is, the Bible is telling here. It seeketh not its own. It has the mind of Christ, where if I have to step down into the form of a servant, I will do that if it elevates somebody else. We don't have that naturally. We don't have that. Our society teaches that you step on top of people to elevate yourself. And that thought has even crept its way into our church as well. It's crept its way among God's people where if we have a certain position in the church, we don't want to hold another position because that position is more inferior than the other position. Lord, have mercy. If I can only advance the cause of God, that's all that matters. If I have to take the form of a servant to elevate somebody else, so be it. I want charity in my heart, amen? Jesus left the throne room of heaven and became a servant here on this earth, subject to his own law. How should I not respond in the same manner? The Bible says that charity seeketh not its own way. I've been reminded, and I've mentioned this before, that the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, that when Jesus comes back, we will be like him. We will be what? It does not say we will be changed in in an instant into his character. Amen? That's what some people think, and I think even some Seventh-day Adventists think that. That we're gonna continue to go on living the way we are, and then when Jesus comes, boom, all of a sudden something's gonna happen to us, and we're gonna have heaven put in our hearts. Mm Mm-mm. You got a harsh reality if that's the way you're thinking. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, we will be like him. Not made like him, but we will be like him. That means when he comes, we will already be like him. That means that when he comes, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, is going to be your experience and mine if we attend to be in heaven one day. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is the atmosphere of heaven. That's what heaven is going to be like. If we don't have that in our hearts, we're not going to enjoy heaven. If that's not what has God has, that we have allowed God to create in our hearts, we will find heaven a repulsive place. But if we allow God to create that in our hearts so that that becomes a reality to us, it's our experience, we will naturally go into heaven and heaven will be a joyful place and we will be able to add to that joy because we will only be seeking the joy and betterment of other people. They shall be like him. When he comes, not only in all the verses, but specifically in the one that I've mentioned this morning, in the attitude of humility, humbleness of heart. I've read this statement to you once before, but it's worth reading again. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, going along with 1 John 3, 4, 1 John 3, 2. 
uh, it says this, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his what? I, 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 I don't know why we haven't really grasped this concept in our minds. Simply put, and this is a biblical concept as well. It's not just from the spirit of prophecy. As I mentioned, the Bible says when Jesus comes, we will be like him. We will have his character reproduced in our hearts. What Jesus is waiting for is he's waiting for his people to have this experience. He's not waiting for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. He's not waiting for the papacy and the United States to do some things together like Revelation 13 says they will do. Of course that's going to happen. But what Jesus is waiting for is he's waiting for people who are so surrendered, not my will but thine be done, that he can pour his character into their hearts and they perfectly reproduce him. And when that happens, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy tells us Jesus will come back to take us home. You see, Jesus can't come back before then because we're not fitted for heaven at that point. If Jesus came before then, we would be counted with those who are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. But he is lingering. He's tarrying. He's waiting. He's saying, Father, let's just give our children a little bit longer to study 1 Corinthians 13. And maybe a few other things too. Let's just give them a little bit longer. Let let us tarry just a little bit longer, Father, because we want want to reproduce this character in as many people as we can to be able to take them to heaven. This is what Jesus is waiting for. This is why the winds of strife are being held back, so that God can do that miracle in your life and in mine. I don't want to hold this thing back any longer than it needs to. We need to get in our prayer closets. We need to have it out with the Lord. We need to learn what, it's, what it means to wrestle as Jacob did with the Lord in prayer and say, God, I will not let you go until this is my experience. I can't have it on my own. I can't do agape. I can act it. I can act it. But it's only gonna be a matter of time before somebody gets under my skin and I blow my lid. I was talking to somebody just recently. He said, you know, my boss has mistreated me for years. And and just so no minds are wandering around, it's nobody here. I know how the human mind works. Let me try to figure out who this is. My boss has mistreated me for so long. And, and, And I've been able to just endure it and try to, you know, heat coals of fire. But he said, just this past week when I was talking with him, My boss did something that got under my nerves and I just spouted off to somebody else about it for a long time. Just told them what I thought about this person. That's acting, right? We can act 1 Corinthians 13. We can act agape, but it will only be a matter of time before you blow. The only person that will be able to truly endure that that pressure is somebody who has the substance of 1 Corinthians 13 created in their hearts. Not created by man, but created by God. We see that ultimate expression when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Under the most severe of circumstances, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We need that experience. We must have it as ours. 
Charity, verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. And then the last one we're going to deal with this morning is uh, this next one, is not easily what? Provoked. Now, I'm going to suggest something. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, if you tend to write in your Bible that you put a line through the word easily because it shouldn't be there. We understand that there are problems with translations. Many translations render this Bible passage, it is not provoked. The New King James Version and several others say, charity is not provoked. Not easily provoked, but is not provoked. The New Living Translation, it is not irritable. The English Standard Version, it is not irritable or resentful. So we find this, the word easily is a supplied word. It should not be part of the verse. It should read, agape is not provoked. Do you agree with me this morning? Now listen, if, if agape is not easily provoked, that means that under certain circumstances, it's allowed to be provoked, right? Yes or no? That's what it really means. If, if you, if you, but, but agape is not provoked. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to provoke agape to anger. Could you have provoked Jesus to anger? I mean, look at all the things that they did to Jesus. Look at all of the ridicule and all the, all the things they heaped upon him, yet he never got provoked to anger. Why? Because he had this in his heart. He could not respond that way because that was not in his heart. And I know when we think about this, we think, I could never do that. And you're right. You never could do that. You can only do that if God creates that in your heart. If you have it out with the Lord in your prayer closet, how often did Jesus pray and ask the Father for strength? We find him oftentimes throughout the Gospels, spending evenings in prayer, long hours in solitude together with his Father. And I think we would do well to spend a little bit more time wrestling these things through with our Father in prayer. It's the only way it's going to happen. It's not going to happen by osmosis, by us simply reading the word of God, but we must wrestle with God in prayer. Psalms 119, verse 165, it says this, great peace have they which love thy law, and some things shall offend them. Come on now, what does it say? It says, nothing shall offend them. When somebody is provoked, it is usually not a positive reaction, is it? Have you ever seen somebody who's been provoked? Prodding them along. They've kind of been holding it back for a long time. And then you finally get them in the right spot. And they blow up, right? It's usually not a very pretty thing that happens. In most cases, it is a reaction or emotion that is typically a strong or unwelcomed one. The word provoke literally means to irritate, to arouse, to anger. Listen to me carefully. If charity is not seeking her own, charity is not going to be provoked or provoked because she is seeking the betterment of somebody else. Amen? Somebody once said, as a spark falls into the sea, hurts not the sea, but is itself extinguished, so an evil thing befalling a loving soul will be extinguished. Can a spark hurt the sea? Is a spark going to do any damage to the ocean? When I have agape in my heart, any sparks that 
could cause a flame to erupt find their death in the heart of somebody who has the agape of Jesus. With agape, with the agape of Jesus in our hearts, we cannot provoke other people, neither are we provoked, but in fact, what we actually do is we provoke other people to something else. And this is what the Bible says. It says this, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, it says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto, unto what? Unto what? What are we doing? We are provoking people to love and to good works. So the Bible says, don't provoke people to anger, but provoke people to love and to good works. So instead of going around trying to find the bad things in people that might provoke them by talking about them to other people, agape, the Bible tells us, finds the good in other people and goes around and starts talking about the good things. And as they talk about those good things, they are provoking people to love and good works. Wouldn't it be great if we had church full of people who had agape in their hearts that were provoking other people to have agape in their hearts? Right? Wouldn't that be great? Like a domino effect where my agape creates agape in somebody else and that agape creates it. It just continues to grow like, like, like a plant, a beautiful plant of God. It grows all of this love until we become the loving church that God has created us to be. You know, I think, I think sometimes as humans, we have one concept of what a loving church is. But the Bible kind of gives us another picture as we look at it here uh, together in 1 Corinthians 13. The Bible says we are to provoke unto love and to good works. Not be provoked, but provoke others to love and good works. I heard a story that happened uh, many years ago. By, uh, it was written by a lady by the name of Corey Ten Boom. How many of you are familiar with Corey Ten Boom? She wrote the book, The Hiding Place. All about her time in a uh, Nazi concentration camp during World War II and, and her spiritual journey through all that. It's a fantastic story, heart-wrenching story. But anyways, uh, after World War II, after she was released from concentration camps, uh, she began a ministry, a traveling ministry, going around various places, teaching forgiveness and things like that. Fantastic woman of God. Her travels took her one time to the continent of Africa. And while she was there, she met a man by the name of Thomas. He was a tall African man who lived in a little grass hut in some distant village in Africa. And Thomas was a man who loved God and loved people. It's an unbeatable combination, right? Having love for people, have a love for God. But Thomas's neighbor across the dirt road hated people and hated God. Therefore, he hated Thomas. And one night, Thomas's neighbor across the dirt road, in the middle of the night, snuck over to Thomas's house and set his straw roof on fire in the middle of the night. Thomas smells the smoke. He gets up. He comes outside. He sees this. House is, uh, you know, caught on fire, and he puts the fire out and saves his house and his family. He had a large family. Went back to bed. The next night, Thomas's neighbor, middle of the night, snuck across the dirt road, set his roof on fire the second time. Thomas, again, woke up in the middle of the night, put the fire out, saved his family. Went back to bed. The third night, his neighbor snuck across the road, set his roof on fire for the third time. Thomas woke up, 
put the fire out, saved his family. You'd think he would have moved to a new village by this point. But the fourth night, Thomas's friend, his neighbor, snuck across the dirt road for the fourth time and set Thomas's roof on fire. Tonight happened, that night happened to be a windy night. And you know what flames and wind do. And before, you know, Thomas knew it, the, the flame was really going on his house. He got out there and he's beating this flame out, putting the, trying to save his house and his family. And while he was beating the flame out, the sparks were flying up in the air and being carried across the street and descended upon the roof of his neighbor. And when Thomas finally got the flame out on his roof, he looked across the street and his neighbor's roof had caught on fire. Now, I know what maybe some of us have been tempted to think serves him right. The wrath of God has fallen upon him. (laughs) If you do bad, you get bad. You know, sometimes we tend to think this way. But when Thomas saw his neighbor's roof on fire, he ran across the dirt road and put the flame out on his neighbor's roof. The chief found out about this the next day, and he put Thomas's neighbor in prison for what he had done. Now, I didn't mention this, but in the process of Thomas putting the flame out, he, he badly burned his hands. He had to be bandaged up. And that night, Thomas <clears throat> went to Corey's meetings that she was holding in, in, in his area. And after the meetings, he, he, was, he met Corey afterwards, and she did what any person would do. She asked him, what, 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 what happened? What happened to your hands? And Thomas reluctantly shared with her this experience of what happened with, with his neighbor, uh, not wanting to do his neighbor any damage, but he shared with her what took place. And Corey said, you must be happy that this man is in prison because now your family is safe. And this is what Thomas said. He said, I am sorry for that man. He is an unusually gifted man. And now he must live together with all those criminals in a horrible prison. You know, when I read this story, what struck me is that what Thomas remembered about his neighbor was not the fact that he put his roof on fire, but that he was an unusually gifted man. Thomas chose to think the good about his neighbor instead of the bad. And when he was asked to share what had taken place, he could only recall a positive thing out of his mouth about his neighbor who tried to burn his house down. Corey said, listen, why don't we pray for your neighbor that the Lord will work on his heart? And Thomas was thrilled to do this. They knelt down together and Thomas lifted up his burnt hands to the Lord. And this is what he prayed. Lord, I claim this neighbor of mine for you. Lord, give him his freedom and do a miracle that in the future, he and I will become a team to bring the gospel to our tribe. Amen. Lord, have mercy. This is not human. This is not a human thing. This is a divine response under these circumstances. 
that he would pray that his quote-unquote worst enemy would become his co-worker. Two days later, Corey was in the prison where Thomas's neighbor was a prisoner, an inmate. She oftentimes went to prisons to preach to the, to the inmates there. And when she preached, the, she preached the message, and at the end she gave an appeal for the inmates to give their hearts to the Lord. Thomas's neighbor was the first to shoot up on his feet. He gave his heart to Jesus. And after that meeting, Corey met with him, and she shared with him Thomas's prayer that he had prayed just two days before. And his neighbor across the street said this. He said, yes, yes, this is how it will be. Can you imagine how many people Thomas and his next door neighbor won to the Lord because of this experience? Can you see how agape has radical transformation power, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people? There was no theology discussed. There was no prophecy discussed. There was none of that stuff. Uh, Thomas simply showed Christ-like love, and it awakened in the heart of a man who hated God and hated people a desire to become a worker for God. Signs of the Times, February 1, 1883, in closing, says this. Nothing will so successfully defeat the devices of Satan and his enemies. Nothing will so build up the Redeemer's kingdom as will the love of Christ manifested by the members of the what? Now, I don't want you to miss something here. What she says is not the love of Christ manifested by Christ. What is it that successfully defeats the devices of Satan and builds up the Redeemer's kingdom? It's the love of Christ manifested by the who? You and me. When we let Christ build that love in our hearts, we are successful in defeating the devices of Satan and building up the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, give me this experience. Peace and prosperity can be enjoyed only as meekness and love are the active exercise, are are inactive exercise. God, give us this experience. You know, listen, it's easy to take somebody through 32 Bible studies. It's easy to hold a four-week Bible prophecy seminar and stand up and preach. That's easy. But what's difficult is to say, Lord, take out myself and put Jesus inside. That's the difficult part. We can throw money at evangelism. We can throw money at outreach, and we should do that. That's the easy part. Where the rubber meets the road, if we want that money to be successful, if we want those Bible studies to be successful, if we want those prophecy seminars to be successful, if we want those tracts that we're handing to our coworkers and people that we meet down the road, if we want all that stuff to be successful, we need to get our priorities straight and spend time in our prayer closet saying, Lord, before I give the money, before I open my mouth, before I do the Bible study, before I hold the prophecy seminar, give me the love of Jesus. 
And then all of these things that God has called us to do will be exponentially more effective in doing what God wants them to do. I want to be effective in defeating the devices of Satan. I want to be effective in building up the kingdom of God. And I pray, I pray that God will give me the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And I pray that he will do the same for you. Is that your desire? Why don't you stand and let the Lord know that's what you want to do today. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us hope that this can become a reality in our lives. That the love of Jesus can be filled and flow out of our hearts to other people. Lord, give us this experience that is effective in pulling down the strongholds of the enemy, that is effective in building up the kingdom of God. Lord, may the love of Jesus be manifested in my life. May the love of Jesus be manifested in the life of each person who is standing here this morning. And may we, Lord, collectively become irresistible as we reach out to other people, that they would find that the religion that we possess is not just a theory, but is an experience that has so thoroughly transformed our lives that we are like Jesus. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Thank you, Father. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.